Hi, welcome to the Tell Me What You're Proud Of podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Maggie Perry. I'm a licensed psychologist with a doctorate degree in clinical psychology. I'm also the founder of the online group therapy platform, Huddle.Care. I love helping people overcome anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, mood disorders, and stress. Please join us each week as we share real sessions with actual clients that reveal helpful techniques for effectively dealing with anxiety, OCD, mood disorders, and stress. We'll discuss what effective therapy looks like, sounds like, and feels like. We'll follow our guests as they overcome their biggest fears and find that despite their biological vulnerabilities, they can still live a rich, full, and meaningful life. My therapeutic approach is strengths-based and seeks to find and reinforce what clients do well to help them generalize those skills towards areas where they're stuck. My model for psychotherapy can be summed up as this. You tell me what you're proud of, and I'll help you become effective and happy across all areas of your life. Thanks for listening, and let's get the show started. Hi, I'm Dr. Maggie Perry, and this is Tell Me What You're Proud Of. Um, For this first um, podcast, I'm here with Dr. Sally Winston. She was my supervisor during my pre-doctoral internship and postdoctoral fellowship here at the Anxiety and Stress Disorder Institute in Maryland. And Sally and I will talk about her history um, and also what she's proud of uh, when she sees people recovering. Um, So Sally, thanks so much for being here. Um, So as I was just saying, uh, or, so my favorite part about being a psychologist, which you have been so um, informative in the six and a half years that I've known you. Um, so my favorite part is seeing people make progress, using flexibility, um, showing courage, compassion, and humor as they face themselves, um, recovering from anxiety disorders and OCD. So I'm wondering if we can just start uh, where this started for you. Uh, can you tell me where things started with anxiety and OCD for you? Well, I get to tell my whole story, which starts about 100 years ago. Um, I, when I was in graduate school uh, in the 1970s, there wasn't anything uh, like specialization. People were trained in a school of psychology, and then they applied that school to every single person they saw. So the idea of specialization didn't even exist at the time. But now I'm a specialist in anxiety disorders and OCD. So it's quite a journey, um, and it, it reflects what has happened in the field of, uh, of psychiatry and psychology from the 1970s until now. Um, when I, I did my postdoc at Shepherd Pratt Hospital in Baltimore, um, and the Anxiety and Stress Disorders Institute is located on the grounds of Shepherd Pratt. So I haven't moved very far physically, but I have moved very far in my intellectual development and in what, in what the entire field of anxiety disorders uh, has become over the years. Um, at the time, I was, I was uh, as a postdoc in 1975, I was kind of a hired heretic here at the hospital because it was an entirely psychoanalytic place. Um, There was also very little available in the way of psychopharmacology because it just didn't exist back then. Um, But my job was to somehow or other bring in new ideas to this psychoanalytic environment. Uh, I didn't realize that at the time. But um, 
I was not enamored of um, the tremendous patience that everybody showed with pain and symptomatologies and, and misery. The average inpatient stay was over a year. And the average outpatient stay was 30 years or more. Um, so it was not, uh, it, it, it was too tolerant of suffering as far as I was concerned. In, the, in about 1978, I stumbled into, it's a long story, but I stumbled into the work of Claire Weeks, who was a family practitioner in Australia who had been uh, a neuroscientist before she became a family practitioner. And she wrote some books with homey names like Hope and Help for Your Nerves and Simple Effective Treatment of Agoraphobia. And her work was so revolutionary to me that it made a paradigm shift for me. But basically what she was doing was saying, not only do you not need to analyze your childhood in order to deal with anxiety, but you also didn't have to regulate yourself and control yourself. That anxiety, including panic attacks, obsessive thoughts, all of the things that are part of anxiety were were normal phenomena that we overreact to and make worse by trying to control. And her approach was revolutionary and it changed my mind about just about everything. So that's the beginning. Yeah. So if that was 1978, can you say more about how that became clinical practice like through the 80s and 90s? Uh we found out about some people named um, Alan Goldstein and Diane Chambliss, who had started a uh, clinic called the Agrophobia Clinic in Philadelphia. And we went up to, uh, to Philadelphia to meet with them and find out what they were doing. And what we did was we sort of ran around the subway system in Philadelphia with a bunch of panicking patients, and we tried to figure out how to be helpful. So it took it right outside of the office. Then I came back to Shepherd Pratt, and I, f I formed an outpatient clinic um, for the treatment of agoraphobia, the fear of having a panic attack in a, a closed space um, or in a, uh, in a situation in which you might feel trapped. And I did this with my co-therapist, who was a recovered agoraphobic woman who had no training whatsoever, but had also known Claire Weeks. And so what we did was start there. Uh, there was a lot of opposition because we were considered to be um, doing something that was simultaneously uh, superficial and also dangerous. Um, but over the years, it grew and grew and grew into this big operation I have here now. And so what was dangerous about it? Well, the idea at the time was that uh, anxiety was a signal for deep uh, conflicts underneath. And if you had anxiety, the only way that you were going to get better would be to analyze and deal with these deeply rooted, serious problems underneath. And that if you had insight into that, then your anxiety would go away. Um, that's an idea I don't ascribe to at all. And um, it made, uh, to me, it just made anxiety seem all the more, all the worst thing and all what you should fight as hard as you could. And of course, anxiety is maintained by the attempt to control it. So um, 
that was what was dangerous, is that if we were going to somehow or other treat just the symptom, uh, which is the suffering that goes with anxiety, that we would unleash this sick, awful stuff underneath and it would overwhelm the patient, which is, of course, not true. Yeah. So can you say more about um, what we know to be true now? And actually, how does that relate to what people, when people think I'm broken, I'm weak, I'm crazy? Like, where is that coming from, from your perspective? There are a lot of myths that still exist in society about um, people who struggle with anxiety or the symptoms of OCD, obsessive intrusive thoughts or compulsions or ways of trying to make all those symptoms go away that uh, interfere with life. Um, and those myths include things like um, this myth that if you think something, it's coming from your unconscious, it's very important, it needs to be dealt with, instead of what I believe, which is that there is a great deal of junk in the human mind that comes at us all the time. Most of it is completely worthless and, and not worthy of attention, and that if we can normalize the way the flow of the mind works, multiple feelings all at the same time, stuff that you really wouldn't want to say outside to anybody, but stuff that goes through your mind, all of the ways in which we have junk in there, if we can make peace with that and not be ashamed of it and not be worried about it, that it means something important, then we can live far better lives. And so what's your sense of why all that junk in people's minds, if, if everybody's experiencing it, why does it bother some people more than others? That's a great question. So there are a number of factors. One of them is genetic. Um, we like to call it the, a sticky mind. Um, it's a pre predisposition that people are born with. Anxiety disorders and OCD run in families genetically, not just by what you're taught. And if you have a sticky mind, you're much more likely to have a trait called anxiety sensitivity in which you're scared of or want to control or get rid of the mind junk. And um, you, you react to things in a way that they get stuck and they go round and round. So biological predisposition is one piece. Second piece, and I think this is where Claire Weeks turned my mind inside out, is what we call paradoxical effort, which is the more, you, you know, in the external world, if you want to uh, get something done, you put in effort. If I want to, to push something away, I put in effort and it goes away, right? Effort works in the outside world. In the inside world, effort works backwards. The more you try hard to control or make something not be there, the stronger it gets. So the paradox of trying to make yourself have a different feeling than the feeling you're having or not have the thought that's bothering you, that makes it worse and that maintains it. And so people who are worried about the contents of their mind or overinterpret the contents of their mind, they struggle to control it and that maintains it. So those are two factors. A third factor is avoidance. The more you avoid, the more you actually create the problem you're trying to avoid. And much of cognitive behavioral therapy is about doing the opposite of your instinct. When something is uncomfortable, you want to run away from it. 
And the treatment that works is to move towards it. Yeah, so a lot of people um, know about uh, exposure and response prevention. They're pretty afraid of it. People know about hierarchies. Um, in huddle.care, we call it intentional practice, which I get from you. So can I just hear from you um, how you understand exposure and response prevention, how that relates to avoidance, and what um, your terms intentional and incidental practice, what, what those are about? Well, um, exposure means putting yourself in a position where you are standing in front of whatever you're scared of, whether it's your own mind or a situation that you're in, and deliberately trying to do it in a different way. Now, that doesn't mean forcing yourself to be exposed to it. It means allowing yourself to be in the situation and to allow yourself to experience whatever you're experiencing without adding shame, fear, rage, disgust, or anything else. In other words, just to feel whatever you are feeling. That can be exposure to thoughts or exposure to feelings or exposure to situations. Like somebody who is afraid to drive, the exposure would be driving. But the exposure wouldn't necessarily be the same exposure for different kinds of driving fears. If a person is afraid of getting lost while they're driving, then you go get lost on purpose. If a person is afraid of making a fool out of themselves by putting on the wrong turn signal, then you put on the wrong turn signal. If the person is afraid that they might have hit someone and want to go back and check to see if there's a dead body, then you go around and you make funny noises that make it perhaps maybe you did hit somebody. So the exposure is to the thought or the feeling in the driving situation that has made you scared. <clears throat> now, there's two different ways of doing exposure. One of them is when stuff comes up, then you have a different attitude towards it. Instead of going, oh, no, oh, no, I hope that this thing that I'm scared of doesn't happen, You, when it does happen, you greet it as an opportunity to learn, and you shift your attitude from please, please don't have this happen to welcoming it, allowing yourself to go through the experience and get to the other side and then ask yourself what you've learned. So that would be when stuff comes up, that's incidental. Planned exposure is where you deliberately set out to create situations that might not come up very often or that you want to practice. So for example, if you're if you have a, a reaction to things that are yellow, then you go about collecting yellow things. Or if you um, don't want to have a certain thought because it upsets you to have that thought, like what if accidentally against my own wishes I killed myself, then you might want to write down I want to die on 27 post-it notes and put them all around your house so that you run into that thought over and over and over again. And eventually that thought is not going to provoke the same reaction as it did before. And then you might want to go to the next step, which is go stand on a roof or look at ropes or do whatever else you need to do to, to do the opposite of avoid. And so I know there's all kinds of different handbooks and manuals and stuff about this, um, but how do people know if they're doing it right? 
great question. And you don't, right? Um, there's no exactly right way to do this. It's not X number of minutes and then you have to feel this way. What you're doing is not a technique. And this is where many self-help books are misunderstood because what you're doing is you're shifting an attitude towards your own experience. And that shift in attitude is, is not something that is easy to describe. We often use metaphors to describe it because it's, it's hard to go from um, wanting to be rid of something to accepting it. Accepting, not accepting suffering, but accepting your own inner experience. What people usually get when they do exposures is they get little glimpses of what acceptance means. They have a moment in which they go, oh, that's it. And it feels better. And then as soon as they recognize that, they say, oh, how do I get more of that? And they've shifted back into trying to control things and they lose it. So it comes in little kind of moments here and there. And when you recognize that you have just shifted your attitude into something more helpful, into this sort of surrender, let it be what it is, I'm not going to work on it, it's okay, then, you, then those are those moments that you build together into recovery. Wonderful, yes. Yeah. So I call these moments um, private effective moments. And I also try to get people to reinforce them and talk about them um, as moments that they're proud. And I... Um, especially because so many people feel so much shame about what they experience, the shift from being proud about an outcome like graduating or getting a job or something to being proud about your internal experience, I feel, and the way that you're relating to your, um, private experience. So not focusing on, um, I'm proud that I'm not anxious, but rather when I was anxious, I'm proud of the way that I responded. That's something that, um, I believe strongly. So do you want to comment on that at all? Well, that's a natural outcome of, of this whole theoretical stance, that, that the way out is not to fix it, but to, to make space for it, to be willing, to allow. It's, a, it's, it's an interesting shift in attitude where you, are, uh, where you are allowing what is there to be. And in, in many ways, it's very similar to Buddhist philosophy and mindfulness meditation, not doing mindfulness in order to relax, but being willing to simply non-judgmentally experience what is in your, in your body, in your mind, in your experience. That's, the, that's where we're aiming in terms of the attitude. And I think when people are able to identify those moments, those glimpses, what you're calling them effective moments, um, that's wonderful. And then what you have in, in your work in group is something I don't have in individual work, which is that people can share them with each other. And I think that's enormously powerful um, to be able to speak out loud and not be shamed for it, that you may have had um, a, a struggle and then a release around something that might seem trivial to someone else. And yet it's a moment of great victory that you allowed yourself to 
turn left while you were driving or that you allowed yourself to feel upset about something or that you allowed yourself to um, have a, a jealous moment and that you didn't shame yourself for that. And to say these things out loud and to be reinforced in a group is an enormously helpful. So that's your innovation. Yeah, thank you. I think in the uh, years that I've been doing this, I think what I uh, feel most proud of or what excites me the most is when people start um, what they're saying with, I don't know, this is kind of silly or I wasn't going to share this, but I'm really proud of this really small moment because they can see what they're doing differently and it matters to them. And I like to to find the patterns in what maintains someone suffering and help them see that there's a small moment of flexibility that could help them get out of it. But also when they see it themselves and see, I used to do it this way and now I'm doing it this way. And if I keep doing it that way, then I'm going to not suffer. Like I'm going to, it'll alleviate my suffering very exciting to me. So I'm wondering for you, uh, what do you feel proud of when you see people doing things well? Um, what are you seeing? Um, it's when people make that attitude shift that is to me, that's when all the, the white knuckling and the, the, the striving and the controlling and the work, um, stops. When people can um, um, make that shift, I think that's the most important part. Of course, they make that shift and then they shift back and they lose it and then they get it back. And when they're able to sort of ride the waves like that and not panic over the experiences that they're having, I think that makes me very proud. I think what makes me most proud is when people end up suffering less. You know, and then I feel really good about the work I've done because it's it it it's uh one you when you suffer less, it's because you are allowing human experience to just be what it is. Um, so it, it it's it's when someone says to me something like, you know, I had this thought it was a horrible thought, and and then then I didn't care about it. <laughs> I didn't have to analyze it or think about it or I didn't have to work on it. I didn't have to see what it meant. It was just a horrible thought. And, 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 you know, by a few hours later, I forgot I even had the thought. And now that we're talking now, I remember it, but it hasn't been, it hasn't been dominating my experience. I've been living my life. Yeah. Just to follow up on that though, when is content relevant? So what, what's the difference between just ignoring anything that bothers you versus like processing, um, stuff that's important? Well, if, if you have to do things in the real world, if you want a dentist appointment, you have to pick up the phone and call the dentist, right? So if you're needing to make, make a decision or a plan or do something or come up with a, an action, uh, you have to think about it. And that's content that's worth, that's content that goes somewhere, right? But content that doesn't go anywhere, it just comes back and tortures you is a trick. It's a mind trick. It's not going to get anywhere. You can't solve too much thinking with more thinking, right? That doesn't work. And so when you find yourself embroiled in these looping kinds of ruminations and thinkings about things, that's your trap. And that's where you have to step out 
and say this content is not worth thinking about. So it's 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 content obsessive thoughts and um, stuff that doesn't need to be explored is identified not by what it's about, but by how it acts and how it feels. And that's how you can tell. Yeah, I love that expression. Can you say more about how it acts and how it feels? It comes back. You try to make it go away and it comes back, right? Um, it expands. It Oh, no, what if this? Oh, well, if that, then this. And it, it generalizes and it goes on and on. And it, it's, it's like a flight of the imagination. Um, you get hooked by your own imagination. And, it, and when you get it to go away, it just comes back. So that's what I mean by, by the way it acts. How it feels is we all know how distressing thoughts feel. They, they go <gasps> like this. They, you, you have an immediate uh, emotional response to it. And along with it is, comes this urge to get rid of it. And so that's how it feels. And I don't think anybody has trouble identifying the feeling part of it. You don't have obsessive thoughts about a chair. You have it about perhaps a chair. If it's like, oh my God, I spent too much money on that chair, <gasps> then that could become something. But it's how, it, how, it, how you and it interact that make the difference. Yeah. So in my program, we talk a lot about delay as a way to identify um, if you're just getting used to these concepts and just getting used to using urgency to cue you to that you might be in an obsessive loop. Um, anything that's actually a problem is also a problem in three hours or three days. So um, allowing yourself to delay. Yeah. yeah do you want to yeah. say more? Yeah. I mean, I've, I've often find myself saying to people, real emergencies a heart attack, a stroke, you're on fire. The rest of it, it's okay to take a little time and see if what you've got is actual urgency or a feeling of urgency um, it, because they, they can be easily um, confused. Just like hopelessness is a feeling, it's not a fact. Certainty is a feeling, it's not a fact. And being able to make those distinctions becomes incredibly important because uh, we don't have to be certain about something in order to proceed. We only have to make our best guess. And yet people are seeking certainty to reassure themselves that they're proceeding or that they're good or that they can make this choice. And it's an illusion because it's just a feeling. All of that is great. So I'm so aware of the time right now. Okay. I'm just wondering if we can end on a realistic philosophy of recovery. The way that you say that is my favorite. Ah. Well, it's not me, actually. It's Claire Weeks. Um, what Claire Weeks taught me early on was recovery occurs when the symptoms no longer matter. Not when they no longer occur. Not when you don't, when you're free of ever having a panic attack or an intrusive thought that bothers you or a, a symptom of any kind. But when those things do happen, which they do happen, if you've got a sticky mind, they're going to come back at some point. But when it, it doesn't matter, it doesn't stop you from proceeding to do what you want to do. It doesn't stop you from 
living a full and flexible life. It doesn't make you ashamed or angry or scared or anything else. It's just a what she calls a hiccup of the mind um, or, or a sensation that doesn't have significance but might be uncomfortable. So when people are aiming for to be free of all symptoms of anxiety, they're, what they're asking for is to be comatose. Uh, that's not an option, um, but it is an option to ride the waves when things happen and not worry so much about them reoccurring. Because if they reoccur, might be some information, but it's not a disaster and it doesn't really matter. And when people get there, they're inoculated for the future. They're not saying, oh my God, I hope it, hope it doesn't come back. It was so terrible. They're saying, I can manage my mind and my experience. I can be okay, even if I'm anxious. Thanks so much, Dr. Sally Winston. This is Dr. Maggie Perry with Tell Me What You're Proud Of. Thanks for listening. Thank you so much for listening. If you felt any benefit from the show, please let us know and share it with anyone you think would also find benefit. As a disclaimer, please consult your doctor or therapist before attempting any strategy shared here. Thank you.